On this week's episode of The Fieldhouse Files, I'll be joined by my colleague Stephen Holder, who covers the Colts for us on The Athletic. He's from South Florida, a big NBA fan who used to cover the Miami Heat. And on this show, we'll talk a lot about the business, and he'll share several stories from his time on the beat. In a world of uncertainty, one thing is for sure. Cancer doesn't stop during a global crisis. So on Saturday, June 13th, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society will host a trailblazing event, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by AbbVie to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and its first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. Step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps. That can be inside or outside, on stairs, on the road, or your treadmill. Just climb your way. Join us for an opening ceremony and then take on your climb with our heart-pumping playlist. Join us on June 13th from coast to coast as we come together to climb, conquer, and cure. Register at lls.org slash bigclimb. And welcome into another episode of The Fieldhouse Files. I'm Scott Agnes. Uh, Today's a a special one. It's a different episode in that we're going to kind of cross over a little bit, keep it within the athletic family. But on today's show, I'm bringing in Stephen Holder, one of our two excellent beat reporters on the Colts beat. So he's on the NFL side, but big NBA fan and a guy that used to cover the league. So, Stephen, first of all, I'm curious just what have things been like for you just in general as we have this not work stoppage, but sports should be going on, but it's not. And it's unlike anything we've ever experienced before. Yeah, it's been it's been bizarre, right, for everybody. You know, we were we were just talking before we hit the record button. You know, we should be in the NBA finals right now, but, you know, we're finding other things to do. Our our lives have changed, right? Um, kids aren't in school. Uh, you know, we're all working from home. Uh, my Internet's down. I normally just go to Starbucks. Now I'm like, all right, are they open? I don't even know. And so <laughs> it's different, you know, and – I just think, but the the funny thing is, though, it does show how adaptable we are. And I, I think we have all become more and more adaptable throughout this. And, you know, life has gone on in its own way, in its own unique way for all of us. So uh, we're making it work. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. I thought going into all this, Stephen, that adapting would actually be easier because we don't have anywhere to go. We're always either working from home or working from the facility or a Marriott hotel or what have you. But in turn, that I think that's even made it even more difficult because I need a change of scenery from my downtown apartment. I want to go to your local coffee shop or work from the team facility just to stare at something different, quite honestly. Um, so that's been a real change. And I'm not sure how individuals like yourself are doing it where you got to manage kids and and what they are up to and entertaining them that's at least something that i'm not having to be concerned with throughout all of this yeah no it's it's exactly right and so like for example my wife also works from home even beyond covid that she's a full-time employee at home but we share a workspace um so that's that's always interesting but now it's like full 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 time right so um (laughs) she doesn't you know, pick up and go to a coffee shop. I don't pick up and go to a coffee shop. Kids are home. You know, school just got out, but there's been math homework that we were trying to work through, you know, and I, it's been a long time since I did fifth grade math, right? So it's been interesting. And <laughs> the thing just, I've heard about know, the Stephen, the thing I keep hearing about that is that they change how it's solved. Or maybe it was even on your yes. show, 1% Better, you were talking about how things are just much differently. So how you learned it is not at all what they're teaching right now. No. So I literally, my wife enlisted uh, my older son's former tutor to, to walk her through some of this stuff because <laughs> because oh, we man. weren't getting, to, to, I mean, to walk my daughter through this stuff because we were like, I don't know how to teach this because we're telling her, oh, yeah, that's easy. Just do this, this and this. And she's looking at us like we're talking Greek. So <laughs> we have a, a tutor that used to help my son with like high school math. And so he actually has been helping out my daughter, not, not because it's, you know, she's so she's struggling so much. It's just because they're not in a you know typical classroom environment. So they're just, you know, and math is, is repetition. It's the, it's process and all that. And so I'm like, I am, I am so glad I never pursued teaching because I would have sucked at it. Like I would have been so bad that has been proven to me. And I will tell you this, Whatever we're paying these teachers, double it. 
is not enough. <laughs> I, I knew I would not be able to have the patience to go through that. I don't have the patience oh. in in general, but with those kids and trying to teach and why don't you understand it? Get it already. You know, it's it's not that easy. Right. Uh, so you, for those that don't know, because maybe you're, you're focused on the Pacers, so Stephen came over here to Indianapolis in 2013, started with the Indianapolis Star, and then was here at the Athletic from the jump with us. So that was pretty cool as we kind of got this thing started, and Zach Kiefer has since joined his bead. Then we had Bob Kravitz um, join on and all this. The one different thing I will say for you guys uh, with the Colts, Stephen, is we just had the draft combine in town, but outside of that, it was kind of beginning to slow down outside of the NFL draft relatively. Obviously, it's kind of a 365-day calendar, but NBA, meanwhile, we were kind of gearing up for the best part of the season, whereas the NFL was starting to get a little bit more quietly. Is that right? Yeah, I think right now we would be uh, we'd be working on um, OTAs right now, the, the off-season practices. So the, the NFL, the one thing I will say, the NFL does an amazing job, or maybe it's terrible. I don't know if you're if you're a player, but uh, an amazing job of always staying in the news and always have something, always having something on the calendar. So they go from the Super Bowl the first week of February to uh, three weeks later, the NFL Combine, then roll right into free agency. A month later, the draft, uh, then it's off-season workout. So there's always something going on. But you, you are correct. Uh, this would be, uh, while there are there, there would be some activities going on, it's certainly not the biggest part of the calendar. So it was, it was already the slow time of year. But the funny thing about it was when, when the stoppages happened, uh, the, the NFL kind of became the only game in town because – since they were sort of operating their off-season schedule, uh, they were able to continue doing that and to continue making transactions and, and having a draft. And you saw the virtual draft, and I thought that went off actually pretty well under the circumstances. Uh, so it, it was really strange. It, it really became the only game in town. And the draft in particular was like <laughs> – it was like the only live sporting event we'd had for, for many, many weeks. So – it was, I mean, the, the ratings for the draft were off the charts, right? So it's been, it's been very interesting um, to, to cover all this in the context of the shutdowns we've had because, you know, things that, that maybe weren't as big a story in another year, this year they were a much bigger deal because, it, that, as I said, was the only game in town. So, um, so we had a very different experience on the NFL beat than did – people who cover other sports completely different because as I said, I don't know that anybody really had anything substantive happening in their leagues uh, during this period outside of the NFL. So I give them credit. I thought it was a little ridiculous initially when, when we were concerned about, you know, what's the death toll going to be? This thing's going to be horrible. It's going to be life changing. And it was, uh, but then here's the NFL saying, no, we're going to go through with our draft and we're going to have free agency and all that. And I'm thinking, oh, this is going to – the optics of this are going to be terrible. Yep. <laughs> but it actually didn't work out that way for the most part. It, it, I think uh, there was sensitivity on, on some level. And then at the end of the day, people were just clamoring for, for sports and the NFL was able to pro- provide that. So it worked out. It worked out well. They got their business done and uh, people got a little bit of a diversion. In the NBA right now, we should be gearing up uh, for the NBA Finals, but unfortunately, that's not true um, with, with everything right now. But we're beginning to see updates. We're beginning to see that light at the end of the tunnel um, for games to surely resume um, by the end of July. But to go back to your previous thought, yeah, I was I was kind of torn. I, I think I had Cravy on the show right before the draft, and it just felt weird. It felt wrong. Yeah. While our attention should be elsewhere, that we're watching something so meaningless in the grand scheme of things. But ultimately, I think the the charity factor. The fact that it gave us some a different outlet, and that's how I kind of view sports in this podcast. Another thing is, it's an opportunity to dis, to break away from your 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 work that may be difficult or a personal problem at home or what have you. It's just something different, something hopefully enjoyable um, for you and for your fans and those sorts of things. I thought they pulled it off well, and and the other thing that came out of that that was notable. Uh, I think now for the second straight. Year, Stephen, is how Colts and Colts.com's Colts Productions continues to 
pull off these incredible behind the scenes videos. And if you haven't seen it, check it out on, I think their YouTube page, but this is what I've been surprised not to see more and more teams shift their mentality. Instead of writing up daily recaps and those various things, use your access to show us something totally different that nobody else can. They're not going to going to allow say you, Steven to go behind the access all in for months on end. They can. So tell that story. Sure, you you got to realize it's going to be filtered to some degree. But I love seeing that from the Colts. And I think it's car- led by Carly Ursay and such, if I'm right. I think she sits on a media um, um, committee, let's say, for the NFL, if I'm correct there. But I- I've been really happy and pleased to see what's come out of all that the last two years. Yeah, and I think that is, to me, uh, the real benefit of having – you know, that media department in a in a professional franchise. Right. Because I know that they they turn out reports and uh, they write stories, too, and, and do a lot of the things that we do. However, there always is going to be that reality that, look, you know, mm-hmm. it's it is public relations on some level is always going to be public relations. Right. However, the one thing that they can provide that we cannot, as you said, is is the the intimate access. So. Uh, I'm never going to set foot in a draft meeting. <laughs> okay. Like that is never happening. Although with Chris Ballard, who knows, maybe times are changing <laughs> a little bit, but if anybody would allow it, it'd be him. But uh, my guess is it's probably never going to happen. Right. So uh, the fact that, and, and actually you gave, you talked about Carly Ursa. I think Chris Ballard, the GM really deserves a lot of credit here because okay. at the end of the day, if he vetoes it, she's going to say, okay, you're in charge of football. I'm not. And, and generally, that's kind of how things work over there. Because if he's if he says no, you know what, I like the idea, but it's going to compromise us too much. Then they're going to say no, and and they're smart enough to not override their football people. But to his credit, he embraced it. Uh, the coaches embraced it, or at least certainly Frank Reich embraced it, the head coach. And they have really turned this into something that I think gives the fans a greater appreciation. For, for what the people who lead their football team do, their favorite football team. And, and I think that's, that's part of, of giving fans what they want. What do fans – what do they want from us? What, what stories perform the best, right, for us? Even? Like when we tell them something they don't know about their favorite athletes, right, when we can give them a window into who they are and what they do or the process, all of those things, those stories always perform well because – there's really very few avenues to to glean that information and to get those sorts of looks at what's happening. So I think the team, the teams, plural, that have done that, because I think some other teams are starting to catch on now, the teams that are doing that, they're, they've really tapped into something. And I think people are going to come to expect that. So, yeah, I, I love it, and I think they should continue to do that. And that's how a team media department can set itself apart. Completely agree. Yeah. And they've done a great job. And number one, making making a lot of great hires. I know they basically like emptied the Channel 13 sports department. I know they got a couple from Wish talking about photographers and such. And so you hire good people, you let them do their thing and uh, and good products happen. And I would agree. I think when it comes to those type of stores, the ones that perform well and how they can differentiate, how we try to differentiate is I always go into things saying, tell me something I don't know and take me where I can't go. That's ultimately the difference. Anyone can watch the game, write a recap, you know, what have you. And I think that's where you can um, kind of separate uh, ourselves a little bit. Did you I'm curious, I, I look at these these organizations and I too see two very similar things in the general managers, team presidents with Chris Ballard and Kevin Pritchard and with Frank Reich and Nate McMillan. Now, Frank's a little more outgoing, a little more. Um, in a good way, preachy, trying to push his message, where normally um, Nate's very reserved, very good with the media, but very quiet in its own right. So I was surprised to see him speak up, in fact, uh, publicly with a letter, um, a statement um, earlier this week. But the only differences I see is an ownership. Herb Simon, the longest tenured NBA owner, very hands off. I think we've had one interview with him in the last several years. Whereas Ursay, you talk to him probably after every game, at least it seems like. And in, when Frank was hired, I thought it was notable how he talked about, I think, how he has a 3T system, much like Kevin Pritchard always hypes about. Togetherness, toughness, trust. Um, long-winded way of asking, what similarities do you observe from both franchises and, and kind of, I think, how they fit the, the people here of Indianapolis? Yeah, I, I do think that both teams have a recognition of, of, of where they are 
geographically and not not even geographically in terms of um, the, their fan base and the the makeup of their fan base. These are people who have sort of a, a, a very longstanding connection, like an emotional connection, not only to the team, but also to the place, you know, and I think that's the thing about people here in Indiana who just have this sort of this really deep pride of where they come from right and so i'm I, like for and that that's not the, the case everywhere like for example i'm you know a lot of people know me i'm from florida from south florida in particular right yeah. and there it is a very transient place uh people come from all over the country uh you know and and new york is like that right people go there for jobs or to, for relocation or what have you people come and go uh clearly a lot of long-standing you know Jets and Giants fans, for example, my uncles were, you know, were raised in New York. And so they raised me on the Giants, you know, and a little Joe Morris and, and that crew and, uh, and so forth back in the day. But my point is, uh, that's we don't have that here, though. We, we have people who are fans of the Colts and Pacers were raised as Colts, as, as fans of the Colts and Pacers. And they have a lot of pride in where they're from and they represent their they represent their state. And I think both of these teams understand that and tap into that. You know, we've seen the Colts tap into that and in, in sort of some of their marketing efforts, for example, you know, and, and look at what they're doing now. They're, they're really doubling down on the, the horseshoe concept and, and things of that nature. Uh, Colts Forge Pacers, is – sorry, I laugh at yeah. Colts Forge. <laughs> I don't like great. that. I don't, it's not great. Almost but just as I much do. as I laugh about the Pacers, we grow basketball <laughs> here. But that's another story. Right. But but at the same time, I I think it's a it's a nod to, all right, this is what we're about. I mean, right. So I think you know if you look at like the field house, the feel of that place, it it they want it to feel like Indiana. You know, um, there are a lot of arenas you've been to, most of them, I'm sure, uh, in the NBA where you could pick that place up and put it anywhere, and it would it it wouldn't make a difference, right? You know, it's just. Uh, an arena with lots of fancy bells and whistles, and that's great, right? I, I think the field house is intended to feel like Indiana, right? They, the environment, uh, the, the 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 even the in-house entertainment at times. Like I, I just think uh, the nod to Hickory, you know, all of that stuff. So I I think both of the teams really do try to um, to reflect Indiana, and I, I mean even another example is the the Colts. They had some slight uniform updates this year, but they're never going to change, right? They're very traditional, and they're going to keep it that way, and that's really important to Jim Mersey. I mean, you see these teams out there. There, there are teams out there with like three and four different jerseys, <laughs> okay, NFL teams. That's, that's how you know you not, don't have a good one then because you're changing it so I frequently. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so I, I don't know that that's a – I don't know that this is necessarily uh, as big a part of uh, of what I was explaining initially in, in terms of that connection to Indiana and all that, but, but it is, it's a little bit about that, you know? And so I just think both of the teams have that in common. And, uh, and, and look, the one thing I'd say too, the other thing I'd say is like, uh, when, when they're doing well, I mean, these fans are with you, right? They're, they're with you all the way for the most part. I mean, we, we went through that period here where, you know, all right, when Kobe would come to town, may he rest in peace, you know, you'd get, you get to, you get the Kobe fans, LeBron. You get the LeBron fans sometimes, but generally, you know, look, we don't we don't have a lot of that. You know, I remember going to growing up in in South Florida and going to uh, an occasional Dolphins game. Listen, if you went to a Dolphins Jets game, there probably is about thirty forty percent Jets fans in the stands. Oh, <laughs> you know, it, it was unsettling. You know, and so it, it, this is a little bit of a different place that way, and I, I think for the for the for the better. Yeah, I, you weren't here when it happened, but there was a, a kind of a seismic shift. I think it was it kind of overlapped when right when the brawl happened and, and they changed yeah. the roster to kind of reflect the good old boys. Well, they didn't win as much, but it was a group you could at least be proud of, quote unquote there. Um, Peyton kind of took over and his crew, you know, Marvin, Edrin, um, all those different guys. And so you did see a, a transformation in, in fans kind of dedicate their time and probably more so their money to 
Colts football, while at the same time, Indiana or yeah, Indiana University basketball was down just as well. And I think those two factors contributed, along with having a Hall of Famer like Peyton, to kind of a a takeover where now, along with the beast that is the NFL, their top priority, in my opinion, in this city, in this state, followed by IU basketball. And I personally rank Pacers third in that tier. Yeah, and and I'll tell you, it's interesting. Um, That was not a dynamic I was familiar with until I came to town. Okay, And I remember coming here on a visit before I took the job uh, and discussing, you know, the the potential for coming here. And I remember one of my editors at the time explaining exactly that to me, that that same hierarchy. And I was floored. And I in retrospect, I was like, why was I so surprised by that? But it's because I didn't understand Indiana, <laughs> you know? And so, and now that I do, I, I get it. Um, I, I just always assumed, okay, well, yeah, of course, the culture, number one, uh, after the run that they had with Peyton, you know, that would just be natural. And I just figured, well, NBA team, all right, well, they're number two, because that's just the way it works. <laughs> uh, but I didn't understand Indiana. And listen, I, I had an appreciation for IU basketball, I had an appreciation for the history, um, but I don't think I quite understood it. So, yeah, and that that's kind of that's kind of a, a sort of a another angle of what we were talking about earlier, which is you know this is a unique place in many ways. So I, I think you have to kind of understand it and understand the dynamics, and and your team better reflect that. And that's why I said kind of Victor Oladipo and what he represents, why that was as much as important move for the Pacers as it was for Victor, who who wanted stability. He had been then traded for the second straight year, and it came at a time when Paul George basically said, I want out, you're not good enough. At least that's how citizens felt and fans felt. And Oladipo kind of hugged them back. He said, no, man, I'm all in. And now we'll see if that continues as he enters a contract here um, this next year. But I think that's been a, a fascinating development. It kind of worked out for both sides. But right now, we just need to see them kind of get over a hump. And I, I wouldn't mind talking about them in just a minute. I want to go back, though, Stephen, to your time in Miami where you, you grew up. And I know you spent some time on the NBA beat, I think maybe with the Miami Herald. Take me back to, to that that experience and what that was like for you and because that's a very different grind than the NFL, where it's very regimented and, and set week by week, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what I tell people is that I covering the NFL is is a different animal. It's a beast, right? We talked about it just being all consuming and in terms of attention and um, just the everything's a story and you know it's a, it's a year round thing, all that. Great. Uh, so I really enjoy that part of it, and it's 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 you're you're part of something really big and massive, right? But I tell people covering the NFL maybe is a bigger deal for me, but covering the NBA was way more fun. <laughs> so I I really believe that, and I, I think that will always be true for me. I, I I don't know. I know that it's changed over the years. We're talking about it's been about fifteen years. I've been on the NFL fifteen years now, but. I had a blast on the NBA, and I, I love the fact that the players were just themselves. They they were their true selves. Uh, you always got an unvarnished version of those guys. Generally, now social media has has certainly you know sort of call, caused athletes to to pull back, right? I, I think in a negative way. They don't show you all of themselves anymore because it'll be on Twitter in five minutes, right? There's that. And they're um, also owning their content way more than they ever did before. And they're, they're about building brands. Whereas before they probably said, Hey, Steven, I got a message. I I need to talk, talk, give me a call. Whereas now they just go to their agent or their marketing or publicist and and put it out on their social media channels. That's such a great example. That's such a great point. I should say. And I know this wasn't your original question, but I have a great example of that. So years ago, uh, when I was on the beat, uh, it might have been 2004, I think. I can't recall. But anyhow, uh, this was – so I, I became pretty close to Alonzo Mourning. And Alonzo had, if you remember, had had you know a kidney transplant, um, yep. retired, and then you know sort of came back. And after his return, um, you know, he – he he wasn't quite himself, but he but he came back and he was you know playing on like this minimum salary deal. He just wanted to you know go one more year, and um, 
we were we were in New Orleans actually in the locker room after a game, and I'll never forget. He called me over and he's like, "Hey, um, when we get home, I need to talk to you." I'm like, <laughs> "Okay, wow, what's up?" And he said, "I got a story for you." I'm like, "Oh, you got a story for me?" And so he tells me, um, as it turns out, so we sit down a day or two later, and he tells me that um, you know through his his organization, he was going to be donating his salary that year, you know, to to uh, I believe it was for um, for homelessness and, uh, for, uh, feeding hungry, the, the local, some of the local food banks and what have you. He, he had, he had started a, a big charity and had a, a big annual charity event that was, uh, geared toward those causes. So this was, you know, sort of to raise awareness and, and sort of promote that event and, and what have you. And, you know, it was only like 400 thousand bucks i say only only right you know, but, yeah. but 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 this is a guy right. who had a hundred million dollar contract once okay so he was he had one of those old you know shaquille o'neal type contracts back in the day juan howard type contracts back in the day if you remember um when i don't i think there were like some screwy salary cap rules back then and uh yeah so i mean alonzo was like one of the highest paid players at one point so so anyhow my point is though he gave me that story and i had it exclusively on the front page of the miami herald um nice. and i remember cnn you know called the next day and had him on and it got great play you know because of that but my point is like today as you said uh he would make a youtube video put it on his social and, <laughs> and we'd be writing the story based on that right so so you're 100 percent right it is the process has absolutely changed but all that all being said i i really enjoyed it um I had I had a unique time on the NBA beat. So I came on, I think in 2003. Was Ira the still there, not, still down there? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yes. Talking about Ira Winterman for everyone. I think he's the only beat writer the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel has ever had, if oh, I'm not okay. mistaken. Well, he's I mean, been there forever. There other people joining him on the beat, but he's been a constant yeah. since the team expanded, uh, which I think was 1988. So. Yeah, <laughs> I was like in middle school in 1988. OK, so um, I don't know where you were, but I think I know. Wasn't, um, wasn't alive yet. <laughs> I wasn't going to say it, though. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so so anyhow, I, I will say this. I, I came on at a really interesting time. They weren't any good. You know, they were kind of going through this transition. They were they were rebuilding. You know, they had had the, the teams that battled with the Knicks and the. Uh, really early to late nineties and early two thousands. Uh, Pat Riley was kind of rebuilding that team. And so when I got there, they were just sort of a, you know, a bunch of, it was just a ragtag group, but the next year, uh, they drafted Dwayne Wade and I kind of got to see the beginning of that. And it's, it was really fun. I think to be on the ground floor of that, you know, I didn't see it through to its end. Right. Cause I, I took another job eventually, but but I, I think it's really fun, and no matter what the sport, I, I will say, it's really fun to be on the ground floor of a star's career. And I was really fortunate, I think, you know, to see him come in as this baby-faced rookie. Like, well, who's this guy? He's a combo guard. He's 6'4". You know, can he play the two? <laughs> All of those questions seem yeah. so freaking ridiculous. Right. Now, right? <laughs> the guy's going to go to the Hall of Fame. He's one of the – He's the greatest player in franchise history. And LeBron is not – That's it's not LeBron. It's it's Dwayne Wade because LeBron came and did his business and, and went. I mean, Dwayne Wade is Miami, okay? He, he is the most beloved athlete in the history of South Florida sports, including Dan Marino now. I, I really believe that. I mean, you could talk about some of the old guard, Bob Greasy and such. But, I mean, mm-hmm. Dwayne Wade is, I think, because of the way he embraced that community – um, and still does, and, and, yeah. And yes, I mean they, they call it Wade County, you know, play off of Dade County. Like, no, he is he is truly the most beloved athlete in the history of Miami sports. So, I I feel really fortunate that I got to see the start of that. And I know this is a really long winded speech I'm giving, but and then the next year Shaquille O'Neal came in, and we had a blast that year. I mean, unbelievable. One probably my favorite guy to cover ever. That one year I did with uh, Shaquille O'Neal, uh, who was coming off of his, his fallout with Kobe. And we had many talks <laughs> about that. That was hilarious, some of those conversations. Some of them I, I still have never printed because I can't. 
But um, so when people yeah, ask it, me who who is my, some of my favorite players to work with back when I was working in locker rooms, Shaq is probably my number one draft pick. And that's just because he always had a, a gravity about him, a way of lifting up the room, of making fun of you, of me, of him. And just having a good time with it. The stories are endless um, um, with yep. Shaq. So I, I totally can, can vision what that, that experience was like for you. Yeah, I mean, he, he was awesome. I mean, I, they had this uh, like unprecedented press conference when he got there. If you, you might remember, you can go on YouTube and find this. He gets traded and he pulls up to the arena. Though First, they had a rally outside the arena. I remember and that. fans showed yeah. up on the steps of the arena. He shows up, I'm not kidding, in an 18-wheeler. He gets out of the cab with a with one of those big, huge water guns, the super soakers, and he just douses the crowd with this super soaker. You know, it's the middle of the summer in Miami, so people are loving it. And, uh, and then we go and have this press conference, and it was awesome. I mean, so, so I remember that afternoon, um, he sat down with with the writers after the big press conference and we just kind of had like a little rap session and he <laughs> and he told us he said now you know you guys don't know me but i just want you to know i read everything <laughs> and we were like oh shoot this is gonna be interesting and um at least he's like, an athlete Sha- who admits it i i accept yeah, that I'm like, but you're shaquille o'neal who cares but um no, he, he really did care and um, we had lots of conversations about stories I'd written. You know, I'd write them like, well, so, hey, uh, you had a problem with that? He's like, well, here's what I think. And he'd tell you. <laughs> and I, I liked it, though. I mean, I, I always tell athletes, and I'm sure you've been here. I'm sure you've been in this position before. I always tell athletes, guys, if you don't like what I write, tell me. But if you don't, I'm probably going to say it again. So, like, <laughs> so it's better you tell me where you, where you stand, and if I got if I'm wrong, let me know I'm wrong because I don't want to be wrong again. So I welcome it, uh, but no, it, it was awesome, and I, I just think a, a player like Shaquille O'Neal can only exist in the NBA, almost, you know, because yeah. that it just lends itself to a guy like that. People may forget that Shaq announced his retirement on this new social media platform. I even forget what it was because I don't think it's around anymore. Um, maybe it was hmm. Vi- Vi- uh, yeah, Vine or something like that similar. It was a video, yeah, terribly poor quality, and it was from his <laughs> monster house. Um, but yeah, he's kind of been ahead of it and kind of been the people's guy, if you will, someone they can try to re- relate with when yeah. it comes down to all that. Well, since most of our listeners are in and around Indianapolis, what better way to promote your business than through our show? Our listeners here at the Fieldhouse Files are loyal and engaged just like you, so there's no better way to advertise your business than on your favorite podcast. To advertise on this very show, just go to theathletic.com slash podcast ads. There you can fill out a very simple form, and we'll get back to you right away. So go to theathletic.com slash podcast ads today. I was really fascinated while I was, I was searching through your Twitter and I saw a tweet. I think it was from 2017. You said you got a, a job with the AP by cold calling and you and you still call that your most valuable experience. I'm curious why. So it wasn't even really a job. I was I was what you know what we refer to as a stringer. If the listeners don't know what a stringer really means, it just means like basically you're hired help and you're you're a, a freelancer who chips in when you're needed, right? And so. The AP being a worldwide organization, you can't have someone in every city at every event, you know, all the time. So what they do is they employ, you know, sort of this army of stringers. I actually didn't cover sports. I covered news. I I actually I ran into a guy at a a basketball game on campus when I was at the University of Miami. Uh, He was covering one of the games as a stringer for the AP. And at the time I was like, huh, I didn't even know that existed. And he was like, yeah, you know, I, he told me how it worked and he explained the process. And so I was like, huh, I'm really interested in how this works. And I cold called the bureau one day and they put me on the phone with the bureau chief in Miami. And he said, how would you know we were looking for help? I was like, sir, I didn't. <laughs> and he said, uh, he said, well, we had a, a new stringer who we'd used for a few years and he just moved away. And um, we could use somebody to, to kind of go out and help with spot news. So they tried me out a couple of times and it, it, it ended up becoming a thing. So what I would do was they would call me when there was breaking news and they couldn't spare someone to get there. And I would just run to the scene, whatever the story was. I mean, you talk about 
uh, unpredictable uh, <laughs> situations. I, I got I got a call once where and this is why to answer your question, this is why it was so valuable. It was literally be ready for anything. So I was still in school at the time, too. And so sometimes I'd be like, uh, Adam, I'm in class. I can't I can't do it right mm-hmm. now. You know? And so uh, but when I was available, I'd go. And so I got a call once. The most random one I ever got was, hey, dude, we need you to get downtown to Cedars Medical Center. Michael Jackson is there. Oh, geez. Michael Jackson. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, my God. So I I, you know, barrel down there through Miami traffic and um, I get there nobody's there. There's nothing going on. As it turns out, he was there, but he was fine. He broke his foot. <laughs> so Big deal. He happened to be in town and somehow broke his foot. I don't know what he was doing. Uh, must have been a hell of a workout or something. He missed a step on his moonwalk. I don't know. <laughs> um, so so that was the most random. I, I did it all, man. I, I had a jailbreak one time. There was a federal prison out in the Everglades. There was a jailbreak. I went out there and covered that on a late on a Saturday night once. I also did what we called, <laughs> for lack of a better word, a death watch, which is basically every time the president takes off and lands, the AP must have someone on site because, you know, if anything happens, if really? the plane gets a flat tire. I did not well, know they, this. Yeah, well, at least they used to. Sure. I, I assume they still do this. It was, it was a really big deal. They're like, well, we, we got to have eyes on the president at all times. That was anytime he's in a public setting, they, they got to have eyes on the president. That's just sort of a rule. They sort of contracted me one day to, to go out to the airport, basically monitor the, the landing and takeoff. He had a this was actually President Clinton and he had a, a fundraiser in Miami it was late in his term. It might have been 1999, I, I would imagine. He came in, he landed, the motorcade picked him up, he left. And I'm like, all right, what now? <laughs> well, now you sit there for three hours. <laughs> and so and so he came back and he took off and he left and I went home. But it was it was it was cool. Like you had to go through the whole Secret Service background check I mean, to get access. And uh, it, it was I mean, you know, for a 21 year old kid, I'm like, you know, hey, this is a hell of an education, man. So it, it was it was awesome, man. I, I really enjoyed it. I ended up getting the opportunity to participate in a, a national internship that they host every year. I so I went out to Dallas and worked there for the summer, did all kinds of stories, Um uh, did a few Cowboys stories. Michael Irvin and uh, Deion Sanders were still there, so that was cool. <laughs> the, the the journalist in me loves those stories and loves the fact that yeah. you know that this was such a, a, a starter job, right? And you probably got paid yeah. very little, and yet you can tell yeah. in the tone in your voice and the smile coming through the phone that that was some of your best times because you didn't know what you were doing. You're figuring it out on the fly and experiencing new things. And I would love, for instance, to read an account, not even um, just of what what covering a president is like, the people you have to deal with, the number of different sources you try to go to, and flying on air. Force One. And though just from a different angle, it's kind of a, a different arena, right? We're in the sports world. That's a whole different boat where uh, there's a lot riding on it that actually means something. So that that whole thing fascinates me you know, on a different level. Yeah, I, I'll tell you, I'll give you another example of exactly what you're talking about. So again, now I'm a kid at the time, you know, I'm in college and my minor was political science and, and history. So like I was kind of okay. interested in other things. But um, but at the same time, you know, you don't know what the hell you're talking about most of the time. So uh, so I I remember after Clinton's impeachment was obviously biggest story in the world at the time. They were uh, there was uh, some kind of uh, there was some sort of political event, uh, some sort of political retreat happening in Miami that weekend following impeachment. And a lot of the Republican leadership was going to be there. So they said, look. We need you to go there and just get as many quotes as possible from, you know, some of these prominent politicians. Well, I walk in there. It turns out John McCain showed up and, you know, obviously he was at the forefront of a lot of that. And I had, you know, find his press secretary and and he talked to me, you know, he he gave me actually really good stuff. And I'll never forget. And he told me he said the right things. And I, I, I listened to some of our politicians today and it's like, man, you guys don't sound like you used to. Uh, he, I remember him telling me, he said, look, you know, a lot of stuff has happened. We can argue about it and all that. He said, look, because obviously President Clinton stayed in office, wasn't removed, et cetera. But uh, he said, look, a lot's happened. He said, but look, this is the time for us to come together and we need to move on. And he said, let's let's try to unify the country. And I don't know that that ever happened. But but my point was, 
he said the right things at the right time. And so, you know, I fed those quotes to our national reporter in Washington and they anchored the story from there. But yeah, I mean, that's, you talk about, you know, being terrified <laughs> as, mm-hmm. as 20 years old, 21 years old. Like, all right, you got to go talk to a long running United States senator, just basically almost cold calling in a sense, you know, just walking up to him in a setting like this. But he, he knew what to say. He was ready to go. And I, I came to realize it's like, you know what? He heard the words Associated Press and he didn't make a distinction. He's like, all right, you're legit. Let's go. Let's do it. And um, I, I always appreciated that, you know, so it, it was pretty cool stuff. And that, those are the kinds of experiences uh, that you could never duplicate. I, I actually had a I had another interview situation with Secretary of State Madeleine Albright one time. She was in town for an event. Uh, they didn't have someone available. I went and uh, I was one of you know only a, a few media who got access to her. So, I mean, it, it was it was really daunting stuff, but um, but a great learning experience. Those are the jobs now I'm concerned about, right? Because you're seeing these yeah. companies cut back. And so, no, they're not going to hire a stringer necessarily for little things. Um, but those are important right. just in case something happens. And, and that's probably a whole different type of podcast. But that's something I know all of us in our field are, are concerned about or keeping an eye on and following um, closely. Thinking back to your MBA time, Stephen, I'm curious what you miss the most about that. I would guess... It would be kind of the access because with the NFL, it's more strict. Seemingly, you talk to the coach and star player once a week, whereas I might talk to a pacer every single day or something like that, sometimes twice a day. Yeah, I think that's one of the big things is I'll start with that. And there's something else, too. I think the the access is definitely different. I mean, Andrew Luck's no longer playing, but, you know, Andrew Luck, when he was on the roster, I talked to excuse me, I talked to Andrew Luck, you know, once or twice a week on a, a Wednesday and then on game day after the game in a, you know, generally in a press conference setting, that was it. And whereas, you know, LeBron James talks every day, <laughs> you know, he's LeBron freaking James. <laughs> I think that is just such a different animal. And you, you tend to be able to explore a lot more issues with them because of that, be they issues about the league, social issues, whatever, just, you know, you learn who they are more as well because you do have that, that greater exposure to them. The other thing, and a related note, is getting out on the road with an NBA team is so invaluable, as you know, because you get away from the media horde back at home. Definitely. So you're able to have these really in-depth conversations because it's just you and a handful of other people in that locker room generally uh, when you're on the road. You're the road team, the, the, at, uh, in a road situation, when you're the visiting team, the home team, generally has the media horde uh, in, the, in the NBA. You only have so much traveling media. So I, I have, Especially if you're the Pacers. I, yes, exactly. You're not getting a lot of national media venturing over unless probably they're asking about Victor's health. That's basically it. Exactly. So, so that, that was a really unique situation, and I, I do miss that. The other thing I'd just say is just uh, I, I think, for example um, – it was just fun in a lot of ways, whether it was uh, now, I know you don't sit courtside as much as you used to. I guess that I don't know how many places you even do that. Not very often, I, man, like two yeah. or three, I want to say. Yeah, but I, back then, though, I, I will say I was very fortunate. I we sat courtside in most places, at least on the, ba- the baseline at, at, at worst. It's such a different view of the game. I mean, it, I can't even put it into words. You know what I'm talking about. It's just it, it's not even the same. I mean. You think you know what's going on out there. You have no idea, okay? You have no idea what's going on out there until you've sat courtside. And it took it for granted back then. I really did. I just never realized just how unique an experience and opportunity that was. I've told this story before, but I don't know if I can accurately tell it in like a few seconds. But this is just how, how unique this experience is. I remember we were at Madison Square Garden once. This has been, I think, two thousand and we sat on the baseline the media sat on the baseline back then at least the visiting media so you're right under the basket basically and um so back then i had this sort of like i, I don't know the players used to call me john legend because i had this little like okay like, sort of i had the, i had here back then so i had this like little fro thing going on and um and i had like we had this is like john legend was like new on the scene back then so he was really hot we had the exact same haircut for some reason, I don't know. And I had like this little goatee that looked like, I don't know, people literally said I looked like him. I never saw it. 
doesn't matter. The point is, the players all said, oh, that's, hey, what's up, John Legend? They, this became a thing. So <laughs> over the course of the season, like, they didn't even call me by my name. They'd be like, what's up, Legend? They called me Legend. Really? So, uh, Man, so there could be much Madison. worse nicknames and, and yeah, guys to be named after. So I'd own that one, but go ahead. Yeah. I was like, bring it on. I was like, you know, I was like, <laughs> yeah, can we keep this going? Right. So anyhow, um, so we're sitting on the baseline Madison Square Garden. I got my head down, my computer typing. And the reporter sitting next to me elbows me. He's like, he points at the bench. The, the, the heat bench was sort of catacorner to us, you know, down in the corner there. And he points at the bench. Well, it turns out three or four of the players, including Shaquille O'Neal, are trying to get my attention in the middle of the freaking game. And I'm like, what is going on? Like, what? And they're pointing to my left. Well, I look up. John Legend is oh, sitting courtside under the other side of the basket with like some model girlfriend. It wasn't, it, it wasn't his current wife. This was a long time ago, but uh, it was some other model. <laughs> and so <laughs> he's sitting courtside and I was like, Oh my God, it, it, only in the NBA, in the middle of a freaking game at Madison square garden, Shaquille O'Neal was like, Hey, that's hilarious. Look at this. <laughs> <laughs> Please tell me you tried to get a picture or something. I, I would think they would want you to go get some kind of picture together. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that happened. It'd but, be kind of yeah, awkward, I but I think the bench, yeah. if they're encouraging it, you could make it happen. <laughs> I probably could have. I wasn't quick enough on my feet, but I just that story. It it's just so hilarious when I think back to it. Like that really happened. So um, yeah, covering football is just a, such a different experience, you know. Um, but again, covering the NBA has changed too. So I I, I do understand. Uh, that distinction as well. Yeah, that's where that access and, and the location is everything. And we don't have it. Oh. We don't ha- have much of it. Orlando, you're right by the bench. Um, uh, Phoenix, really good. Memphis, you're right behind the bench. And to the point where it, it was so quiet, Stephen, in that arena. I've never heard an arena so quiet. It just so happened. It was hmm. like maybe a Tuesday night. They didn't play well, the Grizzlies. It worked out nicely for me because uh, I kind of copied what a lot of our writers have done. And that's a game through the coach's eyes. And it was so quiet that I could hear almost everything he said and, and when he approached players and things like that. So those are the type of stories we try to put out there, but it can only be done when you're sitting right there versus now at Madison Square Garden. You're basically the first row of the balcony level um, is a good way to put oh. it. Internet works great, but very difficult to <laughs> see, and, and we're staring off a monitor to watch things up close. I can't make out what's happening on the bench if, if a trainer is attending to an injury or anything like that, for example. That's rough. Uh, you know, you talk about the the coach, the game through the coach's eyes. Uh, one one thing that that close access that that is a very big part of that that close access, right? And um, a lot of times, what's being said to the referees, for example, which uh, it was is really interesting. I mean, Pat Riley used to have this this sort of um, deep seated hate for Steve Javi, for example. They hated each other. I don't know if you remember this, but. Um, I mean, there were there, he's he's been fined multiple times over run-ins with Steve Javi, um, and I remember one of them we we it, we wrote about we the writers wrote about because we heard it and and Pat Riley talked about it later, and I remember it was right before All Star Weekend and went to All Star and and Riley had had responded to it after the game and said like so he made some really strong comments I was like oh you are gonna so get it and I remember. David Stern, you know, who was great with the media for so many years, uh, he would have his, his annual press conference, right, at, the, at All-Star. And after he got done, you know, you would just you could just walk up to David and writers would sort of encircle him and he would just, you know, shoot the shit, you know, for lack of a better word, with us. And, um, <laughs> and I happened to ask him, I said, now, I said, David, did you hear what Pat said the other day? And he says, he says, I read those comments. And you can tell Pat he'll be hearing from us on Monday, and, <laughs> and he dropped like a twenty five thousand dollar fine on him. And I, and I was like, I right, I'll I'll see. You. I'm going to go to my computer now. And I of course wrote that story. So um, yeah, the NBA was a blast, man. Like that, I I don't have similar experiences. It, it starts from the top. I think yeah. I think David Stern was a big part of that, man. David Stern was a big part of that. He was he embraced it. He knew this was entertainment. Um, and he didn't want it to be corporate, you know, and I think the NFL is more corporate because they want it to be about the team and the shield and, and those things as opposed to the individuals. So it, it's a different approach. But, I mean, 
the games are great in their own way. I think the hardest thing now for us on NBA Beats is that everybody's got a guy. So you got to go through a guy to get to the guy to get yeah. to the player. And so that's what's become more difficult, whereas back in the days, <laughs> I hate to use that, is you just went to the player, and if he needed a message out there, he might go to you. Whereas now, you know, right. I look at Players' Tribune, and in the last day or two, there's a story by Karan Butler and by Tobias Harris. They just own their own story and probably get paid for it as well. And I've had to not join TikTok, but I've had to look at TikTok because Domas is on there <laughs> posting TikToks with his girlfriend and I need to stay up to date on what he's up to. It's crazy. Things you never thought you'd say. <laughs> it's, like, it's true, though. I mean, it, it really is true. I uh, So Instagram's that way, right? I mean, you know, we first realized, okay, we better follow everybody on Twitter. And then Instagram was kind of like, all right, I go to Instagram to have fun and, you know, just sort of look at what my friends are doing. And then I realized, oh, no, no, no. Like, people are saying things on Instagram. It's not just pictures yep. now. And so, um, so you know, and that's been – that's not a recent phenomenon. I'm just saying, like, over the years, like, these are the developments that, that happen when you do this job. Um, it changes – everything changes over time. And you have to you have to constantly adapt in how you do your job. Um, you know, now it's – I don't even know what, what the latest thing is. But you, you are. You're, you're definitely constantly – evolving I, I guess tiktok will be next for me i i've avoided it for this long uh the good news is the demo- i have an 11 year old <laughs> the demographic is just that it. yeah it's your 10 to 22 year olds i think it's the new hit in college um whereas right now wow. I, i'd say in general instagram is probably the most popular outside of Facebook, which isn't my favorite. Um, whereas our world yeah. is really Twitter. Players are on there, but more for brand purposes. I don't think many yes. players are on there just because they enjoy the experience like Instagram. Yeah, and I think part of the reason that in Twitter, I know this isn't relevant necessarily, but I think with Twitter, I think they're, they get a lot of negativity on Twitter. And I, I think it's a disincentive for them to spend a lot of time on there. Uh, you know, people on Twitter tend to be salty. <laughs> Okay, and so yep. you know they're they'll, they're much more inclined to call you a bum because <laughs> you had a bad game on on Twitter. I think you know, whereas I think <laughs> on Instagram it's like you know they'll like your picture and they just keep it moving and they may not they may or may not take the time to you know tell you how much you suck. Yeah, and you can adjust your your experience here. And so Twitter yeah. Twitter it's hard to ignore the mentions, even though that's a separate tab on Instagram. Yeah. If they're DMing you, you don't have to click and see them necessarily. You have to kind of click three tabs, and you can turn off your comments. So right. we're allow I think only people that that follow that you follow to do all that. But anyway, I've kept you long enough. We could probably go on and on with stories and oh, compare and contrast. This is but fun. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, and hopefully. Uh, listeners are enjoying kind of a, a different taste of everything and hearing some of your stories of the past, because I'm sure you have several more with uh, Pat Riley, and maybe we can get those on another time. But <laughs> I appreciate it, Stephen. Thanks so much for the time, and uh, we'll be following your coverage along with Zach Kiefer on The Athletic. All right. Hey, Scott. Thanks, man. This is fun. Good conversation there with Stephen. I think we could have gone on a lot longer. In fact, after I stopped recording, we talked a little bit more about his beat, um, the fact that the Colts have been having weekly interviews with the head coach and at least two players, whereas the Pacers have not, haven't talked to anyone, in fact, over there in almost a month. So it's just two different strategies and in, in trying to stay relevant and making players available. But you can follow Stephen Holder, myself, and more than 400 writers with our coverage at The Athletic. Get 40% off the annual price at theathletic.com slash fieldhousefiles. That'll do it for this week's episode of The Fieldhouse Files, and I'll talk to you again next week. 